Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 741st episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Greg Peterson coming to you from Urban Farm U and Heidi and Greg's new farm in Asheville, North Carolina. And I am here with Zach Brooks tonight. I am very excited to have Zach. He's a longtime friend and doing one of my dream projects that I would have done if I had the time in Phoenix. So Zach is semi-retired from healthcare management at the age of 42 when his consulting company went public. And when his first three grandchildren were born, he went back to Arizona State University to get a second master's degree in sustainability. Frustrated that most causes of climate change were not only fixable, but fixable with off-the-shelf projects and practices, Zach set out to prove that an off-grid lifestyle could be every bit as comfortable as a wasteful lifestyle and have a positive impact on the environment. So five years ago, he bought 10 acres in South Phoenix and began Arizona Worm Farm and started experimenting. Welcome to the show tonight, Zach. Are you ready to rock soil? I am, Greg. It's good to talk to you and nice to talk to all those folks that have that are joining me. Awesome. Thank you for being here. But before we actually get to the soil part, can you tell everybody about Arizona Worm Farm and what it is and how they can find it? Yeah, so the Arizona Worm Farm is my little slice of heaven. It's designed to be a fully sustainable off-the-grid farm where we take sunshine, rainwater, and other people's garbage to grow food and shelter ourselves. We're working on a zero-waste process where everything feeds everything else and nothing is left over at the end. Nice. We, we bought the land about five years ago. It took us about a year to get permits for the city for the first couple of buildings. The, after we were able to, to start, we started growing worms. We wanted worms to improve the quality of the soil and to, to take garbage and consume it. And so we've built a, a business and a business model around vermicomposting and worms. And we're using that to, to grow food and fruits and vegetables. We have about 20 people who work on the farm 
one of my aspirations is to grow enough food so that everybody can take home two meals a day growing wow. on the farm. We're not completely there, but we're, we're on a trajectory that'll get us there within a couple of years. Greg, as you know well, it's hard to grow good salads in July and August in Arizona. Yeah. So unless you want to eat a lot of okra and malabar spinach and and roselle leaves, it's, it's hard to do that. So we're working on how you extend our growing seasons, how you optimize the use of water, and how you continuously improve your soils so that you can do all of those things. Yeah. And the soil is the key, key piece to it. That's for sure. One of the things that I did, speaking to greens in the summertime in Arizona, I have a tower garden, love my tower garden, and we used to use it in the summertime inside. We put a light kit on it and would grow salad greens inside all summer long. Yeah, so we're, we have two now 200 foot by 40 foot greenhouses with wet walls. And oh, we're experimenting. Nice. Yeah, we're experimenting with what you can do and how you can do it. So we'll get there. I'm optimistic that we'll get to where we need to be within another couple of years. Nice. Congratulations. Thanks. And if somebody wants to visit your website, ArizonaWormFarm.com. Uh, we have an ever-growing number of videos about how to vermicompost, how to compost in general, and talks about our products and the classes that we have down at the Worm Farm. Cool. Uh, if you're here in Phoenix, then you're lucky. We're at 19th Avenue south of Baseline at the base of South Mountain. So if you happen to be looking at this picture, those mountains that you're looking at in the background, those are, that's South Mountain. Nice. Excellent. And if you get an opportunity, if you are in the Phoenix area, go see what he's up to. It is amazing. Absolutely amazing. All right. So tonight we're going to talk about the science and beauty of soil that grows our food. Zach joins us to share his secrets on making organic no-till gardening the laziest and easiest way to get results because soil's where it starts, right, Zach? Yeah, Greg, I was a terrible, terrible gardener. I was one of those guys that spent $900 on a three by three raised bed in my backyard. Mm -hmm. And I would pour all kinds of stuff on it. And I'd end up with three sickly tomatoes that were, you know, $275 a, a piece and, and not very tasty. What I found was if I just got the soil right and got out of the way, stuff grew. And if and when you come visit our farm and it's worth coming, you can walk around through our gardens and our food forest and you'll see absolutely remarkable growth. And the only part of that that I take credit for is getting the soil right. Nice. What I want to do is I want to take you back to, it's not exactly an origin story because I did a lot of, I never, I didn't finish that second master's. I got impatient and I, I came out and, and built the worm farm. But as part of that, I took a whole bunch of soil science classes. And I want to talk just for a second about what you learn in soil science classes is hugely applicable if you're going to be a PhD soil science for Cargill. If you're going to work for a commercial farm with commercial labs, with testing that goes on every day, with balances that can occur, balancing in the soil can occur daily through their irrigation and, and distribution systems. The general idea of soil science together just to give you a picture of how frustrating it can be to sit in these classes literally for hours and hours and hours while they 
tell you that while you need nitrogen and phosphorus and potassium, we all know that because those are the three letters on the fertilizers that we buy. There is a whole bunch of other important nutrients that go into making your soil flawless. I was sitting in a class listening to a professor talk about the fact that if you had, for example, insufficient boron, it might look like a nitrogen deficiency. And the only way to really tell is to go get a a soil test. And the soil test would tell you exactly what percentage of boron you needed to add. But then he would go on to say, if you have excess boron, that can be as bad or worse than having insufficient boron. The same is true of molybdenum and and nickel and zinc. They all more or less of any one of those elements can look like nitrogen deficiency. And the solution that most people have frequently is to add more nitrogen. But if you're insufficient in something like, like nickel, then the plants won't absorb that. They won't absorb that nitrogen in an effective way. Why do I raise this? I raise this because I became rapidly convinced that the intricacies of soil science should be left to the PhDs and no one with a backyard garden should ever have a soil test. And I know that many of the people who are listening to your podcast or on this WebEx are likely to say, well, wait a minute, anytime I have any kind of a problem and I go on Facebook and I post, this is the picture of what my leave looks like. The first person into post says, go get a soil test because uh-huh. I think you have a copper deficiency or there's clearly not enough iron in your soil. Let me tell you that from my perspective, that's completely wrong. Trying to balance this scientifically is crazy difficult. So that's my what the left eye said to the right eye about tests between you and me. <laughs> well, yeah, and I, you know, people ask me about tests, and I never suggest them. Now, I just tell people to add lots and lots of organic matter and compost, but we'll get to a, that. And that's what we're going to tell you. We're going to tell you that the more fascinating part of soil science to me, and, and I, I don't expect anybody to understand the details of this, but it at very simple levels and at hugely complex levels, your plants will talk to your soil and get the things that they need at the time that they need them in the way that they need them. And that's mm-hmm. what the Arizona worm farm, that's our approach to, to soil science. The current research says that there's a, at a molecule level, at a detailed scientific level, plants will talk to each other. What we know is if we put the right amount of organic material in the soil and we have lots of microbes, both bacteria and fungi predominantly, but other types of microbes, the plants will produce what's called exudates, basically just sugars. Mm-hmm. They'll be, by the sugars that they produce, they will tell the microbes which microbes will help grow. And they will help grow the microbes that they need to populate themselves. And so if you have good organic matter in your soil, if you have lots of microbes in your soil, your plants will talk to those microbes. The microbes will convert what's in the organic material into what the plant needs at the time that the plant needs it and your plants will grow abundantly. Under our methods that we recommend, which are, I think, very consistent, Greg, with the stuff that you talk about, 
we don't till our gardens because tilling the garden disturbs the fungi and it kills the bacteria. What Kari Spencer from the Microfarm Project says, it would be like going with one of those huge pieces of equipment and running it through a neighborhood of houses and it destroys all the houses. When you're tilling your soil, you're destroying the houses for the mycorrhiza and the fungi and all that kind of stuff. So just to talk, just to say a few words about that, mycorrhiza, fungi, grow in what's called hyphae. And hyphae, they're tiny, tiny, but basically they look like the knuckles on your finger, but they'll Mm -hmm. grow longer and longer and longer and longer. And as they grow longer, they can reach more water. They do a better job of absorbing water, which means that you can water your plants less frequently. And in a place like Phoenix, Arizona, that's a really important thing, but not just about conserving water, but about the growth that you'll get from your plants. Because plants, as we all know, plants deprived of sufficient water don't thrive. Right. Plants that have ample water thrive. And by extending those mycorrhiza and other fungi, we, we can make better use of the water that's out there. Well, those, it would be just, as you point out, it would be just like driving a tractor over your finger. It's nothing good is going to happen if you drive your tractor over your finger. That breaks up all of that stuff. And so we what we want you to do when your tomatoes have grown and you're ready to replace that plant, when your cucumbers are grown and you're ready to replace that plant, we want you to just snip it off at the ground level. We want you to leave everything underneath it, underneath it for the microbes to continue to consume. And as you do that, the microbes will strengthen and they strengthen. And again, there's a ton of science behind this, but it's as simple as the picture is of a forest. It's lots of diversity. The stuff that falls down, which we technically call detritus, that stuff falls down. There's a meme, won't sneak into your house and drink your wine. It'll turn into really good soil. We just want you to leave that stuff there. And in places where you don't have leaves falling and other animals pooping and things like that, we want you to add compost. Because by adding compost, you're adding the organic material that's the building blocks for the microbes to convert into what the plants need. Good compost and and microbes, they won't burn your plants. You can't do damage. I've watched people get all excited because they got miracle Grow and they poured miracle Grow on their tomato plant and it grew six inches practically overnight. But what you got was a sickly rapid growth that can't protect itself from disease. It can't protect itself from pests. And in fact, because it's weakened, it attracts pests. It's like leaving your door open on your house at night with a sign that says, come on, thieves, I'm open for you. Come on in. That's what you're doing when you produce this rapid, very, very fast, not organic growth. By using compost and microbes, you can teach the plants to protect themselves, to grow organically, to protect themselves from the inside out. So I'm sure the next question you were going to ask is, well, how do I get microbes in my garden? Well, it's no surprise that from the Arizona worm farm, we're going to recommend that you get some macroorganisms in your garden. And the easiest way is, is worms. Worms will consume waste. They'll consume that compost and they poop microbes. Worms have no teeth. They have tiny, tiny little mouths. So they won't consume this stuff until it gets quite small. Mm -hmm. Uh, And what comes out of the backside of a worm is just lots and lots of microbes. And those microbes will work in concert with all the stuff that we're talking about to reduce the amount of time and energy that you have to spend on gardening. 
when I was quite young, um, my parents had a garden in our backyard. We're talking now a really long time ago. And my father was convinced that you had to till the garden every year. Yep. We would go out in Phoenix in September because he wanted to be ready for a, a fall planting and we would turn it over. And it just was a very, very arduous process to till the soil. Today, we go out and rent a, a big old macho machine and we run a tiller through our garden. But again, we want you to stop doing that. We don't want you to pull stuff out by the roots. We want you to leave the roots in there. We want you to take yeah. the laziest possible approach, hands-off approach to gardening. And, and if you'll allow me, Greg, I was at your house here in Phoenix a year or two ago yep. and was amazed by your carrot patch. Oh. <laughs> simply, simply by doing nothing, yes. harvesting, I mean, you you can tell me, but I would say harvesting three quarters of the carrots and leaving the rest to go to seed yep. by having good soil, by having microbes, by having the plants reseed themselves. You had carrots growing all the time. Yeah. And to me, that there's no lazier gardener than the guy that just goes out there and harvests once in a while when he wants to eat something. Yep. That was the whole point at the urban farm. It, uh, we call it an old growth food forest. And things just go to seed and come back year after year after year. It's awesome. And that's the secret to lazy gardening. And it's mm -hmm. a secret to good soil. Good soil comes from some standard practices. And it's things like don't pull, leave the stuff there for the subsequent seasons. We recommend and love for people to compost themselves, their own stuff in their own backyard. Mm -hmm. Because if you compost your tomato plant and your, your melons and all of the stuff that you have, it's painfully obvious, but it bears saying, the stuff that that plant needed to grow to produce those leaves, if you compost it, you're recapturing all of that resource and putting it back in there. It's exactly what it needed to grow is in it. And when you put it back in, you recapture those resources. They will recycle back in as long as you want to continue that garden. So yes. we can talk specifically about some techniques yes, to please. improve the overall garden and how you do that. And if you're in a place that is sufficiently temperate and is the appropriate moisture level, you can do in-ground worm composting. And that's by far the easiest and the simplest way to do composting. So that uh, would just be adding worms to your garden? Yeah, it's as simple as digging out an area that... I call it uh, something like pit composting. Yeah. Just dig uh, out a little area and dump some food scraps in it. Yeah, that's all there is to it. It's simply a matter of digging out an area and allowing holes back and forth. Every week we add some food waste to one of these buckets and the worms will consume that waste. They'll move from that area out into the rest of your garden and they'll live fat and happy forever and ever. So, if so what, we're, what we were looking at on that picture was somebody had taken like a five gallon bucket and drilled holes in the side yeah, and put it in the ground. Yeah. And, and I'll, I'll let you in on a secret. Don't mm -hmm. tell anybody. The worms don't care. Right. You can just dig a hole. The hole works fine. A bucket works fine. The bucket or, a, or some hardware cloth, some, some sort of way of keeping excess stuff out makes it easier to add food waste. Mm -hmm. So we do recommend it. We do like that five gallon bucket drilled with lots and lots of holes or well, an old wire 
wastebasket works great. Any sort of container that you can put in your garden, add worms, and then every week, just add an inch of greens, anything that you ate, anything that grew, and then an inch of browns, which is anything that was a tree. And that balances carbon and nitrogen. There's some science behind it, but if you just take greens and cover them with browns, the worms will consume it and they'll add to your garden. I had you on Rosie on the House sometime in the past year. That's a Saturday morning radio show that I do. And we had a conversation and you enlightened me on cardboard boxes, your Amazon boxes. And so I've been shredding. I bought a a shredder that takes a nice thickness. I just shred the cardboard and I add that as a brown. Yeah, anybody who lives in a true urban area, anybody that's got a back, got a raised bed garden on their back porch, but not a lot of other trees and stuff, people in apartments that do container gardening, you can still compost yourself. You have enough greens in the salads and fruits and vegetables that you're eating hopefully every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the green waste. The brown waste, again, if your house is like my house two or three times a week, they bring you browns to your doorstep. And a shredder (laughs) is a great way to do it. Slicing up a box into two or three or four inch slices and soaking it in a five gallon bucket of water overnight. They tear up real easily. And then you can be assured that you're truly recycling because some of our cities don't do as good a job of actually recycling stuff. Whereas if you do it, if you watch it yourself, it'll make your plants grow. And so it's silly to throw that resource away. It's really good carbon. It strengthens roots and branches and stalks. It's a really nice additive. And worms love cardboard. So worms worms form their cocoon on the outside of their body. And cardboard is awesome. They'll crawl into the cardboard. They'll use the cardboard to rub off the cocoon. They eat Um, the the glue. It's cool for composting. Nice. And... uh... I have this belief, and I want you to approve it or deny it, and that is if you don't want to do actual worms, if you add worm castings, fresh worm castings to your garden, aren't some eggs going to come along with it? So if you're adding worm castings, you're automatically going to get worms? Yeah, that's why I'd love for anybody to come down to the worm farm and see how we do it. We screen our castings fresh, so they're microbially hugely active. We don't screen out the cocoons. Nature has invented that cocoon to be the perfect protector of worm eggs. Mm. They'll stay dormant until conditions are correct, meaning the temperature and moisture, and and they can be dormant for a year or two and still have viable eggs inside. So yeah, as you point out, if you come get fresh active castings from us or anybody else local who's doing it in whatever your community is, you will absolutely get cocoons in that castings mix. You will absolutely get worms. And if you're growing a healthy garden, the worms will thrive in that healthy garden. Uh, Here in Phoenix and Arizona, worms are quite hard to kill, but you can do it if you let them dry out completely. Other than that, they do really, really well. And so if you live in some magnificent, beautiful place like North Carolina, where you actually get rain that falls from the sky, Uh, The worms will thrive all year round and they'll do quite nicely. And they can handle temperatures from 30 degrees to 90 degrees. And there's almost no place in America where our soils freeze really hard or where the temperatures are so hot during the daytime that the soil in a well-managed garden gets above a temperature that's comfortable for them. 
I mean, all bets are off if you're watching this from Anchorage or Duluth. The rules are slightly different, but you can still do it. Yeah. All right. So add compost and worm castings. What shouldn't we be doing? So three things that we tell people not to do. And then we've talked about the first one. It's no-till. It's that's just, that's, it goes without saying, we want to leave all that stuff to do it. Yep. We don't want you adding chemicals. There's very few chemicals that you can add to your garden that will really do anything good in the long term. If you're setting up your backyard for your daughter's wedding in three weeks and you need everything to bloom, you can give them a shot of potassium. But other than that, I just can't think of any good reason why you should add chemicals. Most oil-based fertilizers are some form of ammonia. That ammonia passes by the roots, 20, 25, 30% of it gets taken up by the plant. The rest of it passes into the water table to pollute our, our underground water. It's very mm -hmm. expensive and it's inefficient. It's not helpful and it will actually kill the, the things that are going on in the garden. I get this weekly, I get questions from people. I'm treating my things with neem oil. Why are you treating your things with neem oil? Well, because there's spots on them or there's mushrooms in my yard. How do I kill them? I got an email from a lady today. She says, I'm having problems with ants in my yard. How do I kill them? And we have to stop. We have to stop and think 98% of those bugs are good bugs, right? Yeah, that's absolutely true. And we overthink everything. We overthink we get a common thing right now that I'm dealing with on my cucumbers is leaf miners. Yeah. The leaf miners don't really, they don't really hurt much. It makes it slightly less attractive, but do I really care if I have a citrus tree that's thriving aside from a few brown edges, we just ignore it. And, yep. and we continue with that compost, worm castings, mulch on top that that's really, that's it. And that's my final, Oh, by the way, add mulch. If you're living, particularly if you're living anywhere where there's a desert, any bare earth, there's going to be expirations. The moisture that's in the soil is going to mm -hmm. evaporate. We've measured it here at the farm. So we have this food forest where we have nice big infrastructure trees, where we have big shade trees. We have mulch on the ground and we water it routinely. It can be 30 degrees difference in temperature standing under one of these shade trees in a mulched area from that outer area where it's bare. So, so mulch, mulch stuff is a really. We did an experiment at the urban farm and Janice has proven this multiple times over the past three years at her place as well. Bare dirt in August was 150 degrees. Mulched earth was like 125. Green ground cover, cow peas or sweet potatoes, was 89 degrees. That's like a 60 degree difference. To me, that's one of those things you just absolutely should do. If there's a don't, and again, this is me, and I know there are purists who think very, very differently, but me, don't grow stuff that's crazy hard to grow. Mm. In Phoenix, you can grow an avocado tree. Maybe. I've seen them. I know it can be done, but it's, yeah. it's really a ton of work and you really have to figure out the pH. You're adding tons of lime, you're covering it and uncovering it and shading it and unshading it. It's a tremendous amount of work. So to me, grow a mulberry tree, 
and you'll have in Phoenix, you'll have an abundance of delicious fruit, crazy easy to grow. So we like to recommend that people be a little more selective in what they grow. If you need berries in Arizona, grow blackberries. They're easy and they grow and they grow well. Don't try and grow blueberries. Right. That stuff that's really hard to grow. We just advise you not to grow. If you have to amend your soil so much that it no longer looks like the place that you're living at, then the don't is don't, we just don't think you should. We think you will be happier growing stuff that's easier. Yeah. Um, if you, and again, I'd not to bug your fruit sales here, but if you go to an urban farm fruit tree sale and uh-huh. you buy the trees that you put on sale, you will have great fruit two or three years later. Absolutely. And that's what I think people should do. Yeah. Designed that way. Yeah. And my whole fruit tree program started because you can go into most nurseries in every big box store and they will sell you fruit trees that will never make fruit. We just proved that last month with Sprouts. Sprouts was selling 800 hour chill trees. Yeah. It's frustrating me. People come into the farm with a picture of a tree that should never have been planted in Arizona. And they say, how do I amend the soil to make it work? We're pretty direct. And so we tell them to dig it out and put a mulberry tree in. Yeah. Or the right peach tree or the right apple tree. I saw a post from Matt on Facebook. I won't use his last name, but I know Matt. And he said he had just finished harvesting 15 pounds of Pakistani mulberries off of his tree. Like the Pakistani mulberry is amazing. The dwarf black mulberry is amazing for Arizona. I brought both them here with me. So I'm experimenting with them here, but the Illinois ever bearing mulberry is like a Pakistani and that'll do great here. So you have to get really specific about what works in your area as well. Yeah. I have a, I just saw a question pop up. I have a, a native Mexican elderberry tree. Ah, yes. That in my opinion grows three feet every single time I walk by it. Uh Uh-huh. It's absolutely gigantic. It's flowering and fruiting like crazy. And it's really, it's a super easy tree to grow. The important thing there is just get the right variety. Right, Uh, exactly. I wouldn't use that one here. Here's what I've learned about elderberries because I'm I'm getting ready to plant 100 elderberries in the ground and start growing them commercially. Cut a stick with four nodes. That's the, the nodes of the places where the leaves come out. Stick two nodes in the ground and make sure it stays watered and it'll grow another one. Yeah. It's so incredibly cool. Yeah. I mean, we've, there's a, there are a number of trees that we do that for at the worm farm and, and make available for people to buy. And then it lets you buy them very, very inexpensively. So again, that's why the message is if you choose the right stuff, gardening is a whole lot easier than if you choose the wrong stuff. So right now I have way more Armenian cucumbers than I can eat because Armenian cucumbers just grow like crazy in Phoenix. Yes, they do. They're easy, they're hardy, and they have tremendous fruit. That's better than trying to grow some of the Japanese varieties that -hmm. that do wonderful in Tokyo, but they just don't do as well in Phoenix. Yeah, Yeah, cool. You want to take some questions? Sure. All right. Joanna says, I bought a new house in Nova Scotia, so it's very cold there. Any hints on how to get the new garden going fast. 
when I won the bid for my new place, instead of cracking open a bottle of wine, I bought a greenhouse. <laughs> nice. Any thoughts on yeah. that? So first of all, eat lots and lots of lobster because in Nova Scotia, it's, that's the best. Oh, there you go. That's So yes, a couple of suggestions, and this applies anywhere. It's not just Nova Scotia, but what you want to do is you want to sacrifice your first crop to soil development. It doesn't have to be a very long crop, but put in a good layer of, of compost, assuming you've got some soil to work with there and it's not... If it's all rock, my best advice is a raised bed. Mm -hmm. uh, if, you're, if you can't penetrate the soil at all, then come up a foot or two, fill it with good compost, grow a cover crop. I'm not familiar enough with cold weather cover crops. Here in the south, about midway through the country, we do buckwheat, we do cowpeas, we do any kind of legume, but we would plant some sort of green manure. Again, you'll need to find out what works in Nova Scotia. Here, for somebody that's impatient, I would tell you plant buckwheat because it's six weeks from seed to when it's ready to chop and drop. Chop and drop. No, there you, you go. Just chop it and leave it there. It adds a ton of nitrogen to the soil. And then we grow stuff that's easy to grow. I suspect that you have a very short growing season. Yeah. And so I would choose things that mature quickly rapidly. So that's root vegetables. If you're going to grow, if you're going to grow any kind of melons, you're going to want to grow the small ones. You're going to want to grow sugar, baby watermelons and things that are cherry tomatoes, stuff that's little. Again, I don't garden in the, in cold weather. So you need to learn your seasons. I'll give you one piece of advice that I think is the best piece of advice for Greg does a really good job of talking about growing all across the United States. And when someone comes in and says, who do I follow? There are people in Phoenix that are gardening experts in Phoenix and following a gardening expert who's growing in Phoenix is a really smart thing to do. I would yeah. tell you that same thing is true in Nova Scotia. Money yep. back guarantee. There's a dozen people there who are passionate about gardening, who know what they're talking about. Following them on Facebook or Instagram will help you be successful. Yeah. And Barbara just reminded me, Nikki Jabor is in Nova Scotia. Nikki's been on the podcast, the Urban Farm Podcast, and she's written books about cold climate gardening. So that's N-I-K-K-I-J-A-B-O-U-R. Look her up online. She's amazing. It was great fun to interview her. Deb and Cheryl want to know what are wet walls? Oh, so evaporative coolers in a greenhouse. The way evaporative cooling works is you run water through a pad and you blow air across that pad and the water evaporates and it cools the air as it moves from drier to cooler. So evaporative cooling works well in dry climates. It works well in places like Denver and in Arizona and Texas, places where the humidity isn't crazy high. So you're blowing air through a what we call a wall of, of water. It's just mm -hmm. a pad that drips water down. In a big greenhouse, the easiest way to accomplish that is to have one wall that's just all these pads with water dropping down and then fans at the other end that suck the air through that pad, through the greenhouse and out the other side. And that lets us cool the temperatures in the greenhouse as much as 30 or 40 degrees this time of year and into our dry season. So here in Arizona, typically the humidity creeps up in August and they're less 
efficient when it's humid. But if you live in a dry place, evaporative cooling is a really inexpensive way to cool. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you. Marion says, do we just cut weeds or pull out the roots? That's kind of an it depends. For invasive species like Bermuda grass, you need to dig out the roots. But what do you do with mallow and other pioneer species or weeds as we call them? Yeah, so a weed is just a plant that won't grow in a line. And so we frequently see people who have weeds in their lawns go out there and make it worse by trying to dig them up. Mm -hmm. uh, what we try and do is to have our healthy plants outcompete the things that we don't want to grow. And so we use sheet mulching and we use, we just try and get a very vigorous, thick growth of the stuff that we want to grow over those other weeds. The direct answer to your question is for most plants, I do exactly what Greg describes. If they're invasive, I dig them out by the roots. If they're not invasive, we just chop them off and leave what's below for well, them. To and those roots become compost in the soil. That's a big part of how in 32 years I made two feet of incredible growing topsoil at the urban farm was when the weeds arrived, I'd just go in with a serrated knife or a carpet cutter and just grab the top of the weed, cut the weed just under the soil level. It kills the plant. Now, all of a sudden you have a great piece for compost or chickens and you get compost right in the soil. So this one, this question's exactly for you, Zach. Can you. you use worm tea as a foliar spray? You can, but it doesn't do what you think it does. Worm tea is, a, we think it's a really good thing to spray on leaves, but it's not a fertilizer. There's relatively little of the nitrogen or phosphorus or mm. other elements in worm poop. What there is, is lots of microbes. The microbes, when you spray those microbes on leaves, they attach themselves to the leaf and they will help that leaf thicken, harden, protect itself, heal. It's a microbial activity. It's good to do once or twice a year. It's not a replacement for foliar feeding. So if my goal in foliar feeding is to provide fertilizer, is to provide food, worm tea is not the product to use. And we make worm tea every, every Saturday at mm -hmm. the farm. We have a commercial setup where we'll come out and spray your lawn. We think it's a really smart thing to do on a routine basis, once or twice a year. Mm -hmm. uh, beyond that, though, if you have a tree that for some reason or just for ordinary maintenance, you're looking to feed it. Worm tea is not the answer. And just a parallel to that, worm castings are not good food. If you have houseplants and you want to feed your houseplants, worm castings are not, it's not a good food. It works in concert with good compost to organically provide food to your plants. It's hard to be organic in a houseplant, but in a garden setting, 95% compost, which is much less expensive, 5% castings which is more expensive, is the perfect combination. It mm -hmm. gets you what you need to do for the lowest dollar point. If you'll allow me one commercial. Please. Uh, the castings that you buy sealed in a bag in a big box store are not going to be as effective as the ones that you can buy live and healthy. If you come to my farm, you can walk around and see the worms actually eating the food waste. And the casting that you buy from us 
was in our worm wedges the day before. It's a 24 hour cycle to get it from the wedges, which are hugely microbially active into your garden. There's a demonstrable difference between a fresh harvest casting and the stuff that you buy sealed that was made months earlier. Those microbes are living, breathing organisms and they need access to that, which is why if you're in Nova Scotia or Orange County or, or someplace else, and you don't have access to good, fresh castings, we think you ought to have worms because the worms will make them for you. There you uh, go. Not, there are, there almost is certainly somebody who can do it. Um, we have videos on how to do it at yourself in your own house. It's not complicated that you can right. do it in a bin and produce your own. Aurora Rogers is in the house. Hello, Aurora. Aurora is with producingfreedom.com. It's great to see you here. She'd like to know what we're doing about poison ivy here. So that's a question for me. Poison ivy, it's not something you want to be touching ever. So what I've been doing is I've been identifying it, going around with a pitchfork, and I put on long sleeves and plastic bags on my hands and dig it up and put it in the trash can. That's what I've been doing with poison ivy here. So Phyllis wants to know, do you leave the leaves of plants that looked or seem diseased? Yeah. So that's one where Facebook is useful. <clears throat> Depending on what the disease is, mm -hmm. we will remove it completely. We had a apricot tree get infected with apricot borers. Oh, yes. Caused some damage to leaves. Once we recognize it, we remove the entire limb. Yep. And we destroy that. We don't even try and compost it. We destroy it completely. Tomatoes can be susceptible to some bacterial infections. So that's where Facebook can be your friend. You need to learn what's healthy and what's not, what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. Some things are pretty common and a tree that gets frost damage and the leaves all crinkle up, we leave those on there. We, right. we don't moth. We let them go. They protect the tree. They'll fall to the ground and be quite healthy. So there are a few things that we panic when we see on that same path, squash bugs. When we see squash bugs, we whip out the shop vac and suck those babies away. as, fat <laughs> as Yep. There you go. And so that's a good reason to go out in your garden every single day. Cause if you grab that problem, when it's relatively small, you can deal with it. The same thing is true of diseased plants. If you find something that's really problematic, don't, we don't try and compost it. We get rid of it. Yeah. Perfect. Terry says, I try to leave most things in the garden. However, I am having a terrible time with fire ants in my garden. Do you have any suggestions on how to handle them? Yeah, they happen to be composters. If I didn't have to be in my garden, I would let ants be in my garden, but I have to be in my garden. I buy ant baits. They're little plastic things that have ant stuff in them. I put them in the garden. The ants go in and it kills them. Ants and gophers are the only thing we really kill on a regular basis. Yeah. And it's not that the ants are harmful to anything. The fact is they're pollinators, they're composters. Um, but exactly. They bite. And I don't, nobody wants fire. Nobody wants to reach in to get a carrot and come up with a handful of ants. Right. So, so one of the things that I've done in the past, and I hate to say this, but it works, is if you have a problematic anthill, what I do is I take a pitchfork to it. And then I pour boiling water on it. And I've only had to do that once or twice. It works. 
It kills the microbes in the soil, but it also gets rid of the fire ants. So you can try that. Tammy wants to know, hey, Zach, do you have any Mexican elderberry plants for sale at Arizona Worm Farm? Yes, we do. And they're quite inexpensive and they're amazing. The speed at which they grow is oh, mind-blowing. Yeah, I, I, took, I took 104 elderberry sticks and I stuck them in the ground in February. And most of them are about six to 12 inches tall. Yeah. If, yeah. If she does come down to the worm farm, have her ask for me. I'd love to show you a two-year-old tree because you better put it someplace where you got some room. Right. Uh, this tree is a- a- unbelievable. Two years in is unbelievable. Yeah. Cool. And we'll probably be bringing some of those up. Tammy as well from Tucson. There's a grower down in Tucson. So we'll have those also in the spring for our fruit tree program. Sandy says, I haven't done worms yet because I put the greens and browns in a bin and get great compost out of it. Great. Would you do half worms and half bin or since compost bin is working, keep it going with that? Well, composting, hot composting, thermophilic composting is different than worm composting, right? Yeah. If it's working, don't stop. If you're getting good compost, then good on you. I would keep that up. Typically what I do in for my own use, for my own garden, mm-hmm. um, I'll take that hot, the finished hot compost and I'll add some worms to the finished hot compost. And then I get the best of both worlds. I get the added microbes that come from the worms. The worms will eat that compost when it's finished. So if you have it, particularly if you have it in a barrel where it's got some depth to it, you can add worms to the top side of that once it's finished its thermophilic process and boost the quality of that compost tremendously. But again, if it's not broken, don't fix it. If you're composting, you're getting good composting, you're using your compost to grow plants and they're growing well, you have achieved the ultimate success. Again, I was out at Greg's house and talking about some worm casting tea spray. And one of the, I don't think Greg saw as much of a as a difference because his soil was so microbially active. Yeah. So once you get the soil really strong, you're done. You just got to keep it going. Yeah, there you go. Chuck says, can mangoes and papaya viably grow in Tucson in a ground or in a container? Absolutely in the ground. What are your thoughts? Yeah, same answer. So we, mangoes and papayas, I have had success with mangoes and papayas. I've got some guava in the ground that are doing quite well also. Mm -hmm. Uh, The advice I would give you is plant them under canopy trees. Yep. Otherwise you're out there covering them, uncovering them, stuff like that. So if you start with a couple of canopy trees, start with a mulberry or a moringa or even natives, mesquite trees or something like that, grow something for a year or two and then plant them underneath or around those. There's a lot of work on permaculture and I know the urban farm has a lot of permaculture stuff, but if you think about this, they call them a guild. If you think about trees that live well together and things that protect them, absolutely go for it. Yeah. Perfect. Phyllis says, I have a large white worms in my compost bin. Are they bad? No, they're disgusting, but they're not bad. They, depending on what they are, mm-hmm. uh, they will aid in the composting process. process. Um, it's probably a sign that your compost is either a little food heavy or a little bit too wet. 
it's hard to get a compost pile too wet in Phoenix. So we don't deal with that a lot, but too much food waste can, you, you'll grow a variety of different maggots, which is what you're, what you're probably, yeah. they're probably not worms. They're probably some form of maggot. They will either die off when the food is gone or they'll pupate into something that will fly away and not bother you ever again. So almost certainly there's no harm at all. Almost certainly by the time your compost is finished, they'll be gone. We don't like to add grubs into our soil because they can do some damage. So if they turn into big, fat, juicy worms, you want to make sure that you're not introducing those into the garden. But almost certainly those things that you're seeing are maggots. Feed them to the chickens. Yeah. Feed them to the chickens. Dennis from Rocky Point, using your black fly fly compost, so far three treatments on citrus trees, Mexican lime and orange, that are having problems with growing new leaves. How long should it be before seeing some results? Trees were bought here at a local nursery in Rocky Point, but of unknown variety. They're just one year old. So what he's talking about is at the worm farm, we're experimenting with a new fertilizer. It's actually a fertilizer that we're making from ground up black soldier fly larva. There's some properties of the larva that don't exist in fish hydrolysate. Insects have some properties that are healing properties. We've seen really good results with this fertilizer that we still continue to test. I would tell you that in Rocky Point, you have some soil issues. And so the fertilizer, it may or may not work in that environment. But what we are seeing is we're seeing results on in good soils within three or four days and in rough soils within three or four weeks. All right, cool. Kayla says, is companion planting really that important in a dry climate? Absolutely. And Bill McDormand and I had that conversation on our seed chat last week, which will be coming out in three weeks on the podcast. So watch for the companion planting podcast. It was really good. Carol wants to know, how do you eradicate gophers? Trap them or gas them. Mm-hmm. So we, we actually have a class on gopher trapping. It's one of those things where you, it, you and your neighbors need to work collectively. A gopher will have between 10 and 12 babies a week. And those babies become capable. What? Yeah, it's a crazy, crazy productive animal. Those babies become capable of having their own babies in something like eight or 10 weeks. So that they they grow really, really fast. When you see a mound, you want to react to that mound. The most humane, but a little bit cumbersome, any internal combustion engine, take the exhaust from that, stick it in the hole and pump that hole full of carbon dioxide. We use traps. And we actually teach classes in how to trap gophers. You want to get a good trap. You want to get a good trap and you want to get on it as soon as you see your first mound. And you want to make sure that all of your neighbors, hopefully, you know, all your neighbors, bake them some mulberry pie or something, but gophers will travel from yard to yard to yard. And so you want to all be trapping at the same time if you can. Perfect. I've used in the past the black hole gopher trap. So Jeff wants to know what is the best method for planting young plants without disturbing the microbes or I'm or soil, I'm assuming. How large of an area should one dig out and prepare for the roots of the new plants? And what not understanding what this word is. So let's just go with that. 
Yeah, so we're not purists. When we say no-till, we don't mean never. Dig up the area that you need. So when you're planting a plant, some plants you just want to dig out however much you're removing to, to put that in. Some plants like tomatoes, you want to dig out a little bit more because you want to plant them deep. Root vegetables, we seed directly. There are literally billions and billions of microbes in a cup of soil. They're very, very small. Mm -hmm. You can kill lots of them and still have way more than you ever need. And they repopulate quickly. So for planting purposes, we never worry about it. When you're planting a tree, we want you to dig that hole one and a half times as big as the root that you're putting in. We want you to dig that area out. We want you to fill it back in with some compost and some native soil but the microbes will come back to that relatively quickly. All right, we got two more, and then we're going to be wrapping that up. Okay. Alicia says, improved plant nutrition, properly made balanced compost provides a huge range of micro and macro nutrients for plants like nitrogen, potassium, phosphorus, and many micronutrient minerals, much like a balanced diet for people. Yeah, that's the case. Um, she says, any thoughts? Yeah, that's exactly, that's 100% correct. When we fill new beds with soil, our favorite is to build it with compost that you made yourself from the things that you want to grow. Mm -hmm. Our second favorite is to use your compost plus two or three or four different kinds of compost or variety of compost from different places. Our third favorite is the compost we make at the Arizona Worm Farm. Of so course. that's the hierarchy, but the more diversity, the better the compost you, you get, uh, the, the easier it is to grow stuff. Yeah. Amen to that. Just a quickie. Yep. I get the question frequently, whether you should add azomite or basalt dust in this process, mm -hmm. because that adds a lot of mineralization. It doesn't affect your current crop. It takes a long time for those things to break down and be yeah. used. If you're building soil, we do add some mineralization. And so you need to know a little bit about your local soil. If it's lacking some stuff, then we do add a small amount in that process. Yeah. Perfect. And we add some, we suggest two pounds for every fruit tree going in the ground, which I'm going to go ahead and continue on my 180 fruit trees that are going in the ground here. So I'll be buying a lot of azomite. Tony says, yeah. and this is a question for both of us, because I have some input on this one too. And this is our final question. Tony says, I live in Orange County. It rained a lot here this past season in the last two weeks. Now, remember, it's getting hot in Orange County. In the last two weeks, my dwarf kale became infested with aphids and bolted. What do I do to get rid of the aphids, number one? And number two, what do I do with the infested dropped leaves? Do I let them stay or go back into the soil? I'll be interested in your feedback on when my kale starts to bolt, I remove it. I chop it up and compost it. I've never been successful. Once a plant bolts, I've never been successful in getting good tasting foliage from that. Going right. Forward. I just, I, it just doesn't work. So yeah. once it bolts, I either, in some cases, again, like I saw at your house, some cases we'll let it flower, get yep. seeds and reseed itself to come back. In some cases we remove it with things like an aphid infestation, your weather did that to you. There's not much you can do about it. We would typically dispose of it. We would typically not use it. Aphids lay a ton of eggs. You don't want to encourage any of that growth. Again, I'd be interested in Greg's feedback. At my farm, we would dispose of it. Yeah. I just fed it at the urban farm when we had chickens. I fed it to the chickens. But here's the deal. Kale. 
wrong season. If it's bolting, it's at the end of its life. Plants that are at the end of their life have bugs that show up to eat them. That's the natural process. The natural process is aphids show up, they break down the plant for next year. So it's just dwarf kale this time of year, wrong season. In warm climates, kale goes in in the fall. Yeah, I agree with that completely. Yeah. All right, everybody. Thank you so much. We had an amazing conversation tonight. Remind everybody where they can find you and what they can get from you. Right. So Arizona Worm Farm, you can see us online at ArizonaWormFarm.com. We have a lot of the stories behind this. We're in South Phoenix at 19th Avenue, south of Baseline, and we have compost and raised bed mix and worms and worm castings. We have a really, really good worm castings tea that we brew for every Saturday morning. And if you're interested in experimenting, we've got this new black soldier fly larva fertilizer that we've had results ranging from so great, I can't wait to get more to it didn't kill anything. And so- <laughs> For us, that's a pretty good, we're figuring out what it works best on and what it doesn't work best on. But if you've got a tree that's struggling, I would really encourage you to give this stuff a try because the downside is the tree gets worse, which it probably was going to do anyway. There's nothing mm -hmm. in this fertilizer that won't just make it better. And there's some science to believe that it might help it repair itself. Excellent. Excellent. Zach Brooks, thank you so much. I love what you're doing and keep it up. And thank you everybody for showing up and we'll... Uh... Catch you all on the flip side. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners, if you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.